Isn't that awesome? Wow. How many of you wish you could play like that? <laughs> no, you, your pride would get to you and it wouldn't be any good anymore. But uh, no, hey, welcome to the bridge. Welcome to week one of Joyride. I'm so glad you guys are here. My name's Scott. I'm the lead pastor here at the bridge. And uh, I'm excited about this series that we're launching today. And uh, we're going to have a great time. You know, th- what comes to your mind when you think of the term joyride? What kind of images or what things come to your mind? Maybe when you think of joyride, you think of a, a ride in some sweet vintage car or maybe a convertible or maybe a big Harley. Maybe that's your joyride. Uh, maybe you think of a ride like on a roller coaster, you know, with your hands in the air like you don't care. Maybe that's what you think of with Joyride, or maybe a family vacation. That's a road trip where everybody has a good time. How many of you did family vacation this year? How many of you? Anybody? How many of you had a good time on it? No, don't, I'm not asking that. Sometimes family vacations can be a joyride as well. Here's what I know about us is that regardless of the way we define the term joyride, what I know about you and what I know about me is that we love it when they're happening and we hate it when they're over. We really enjoy taking those joyrides and we really don't like it when they end. And, and my hope in this series is that we really will learn how to live a life that's characterized by joy and that we will experience a joy ride that lasts every day for the rest of our lives. And that would be my goal. And what we're going to do for the next six weeks is we're going to look at this letter that was written to a, uh, a group of Christ followers in the first century. It was written by a guy named Paul or the Apostle Paul. And he writes to this group of, of Christ followers. And just a little bit about the Apostle Paul. Um, he was a Jewish guy. He was uh, known in Jewish circles by the name Saul. And he was raised to be like this prominent Jewish religious leader. And in fact, at one particular point, he actually hated Christians. Uh, so much so that he personally uh, was involved in arresting them, persecuting them, imprisoning them. And murdering, I mean, we're talking men, women, and children who claimed to be Jesus followers in the first century. And it was on one of these occasions when he was traveling to go and actually arrest some more people, some more of these Christ followers, that he had a personal encounter with the resurrected Jesus. And it changed his life forever. He went from being like the number one persecutor of Christianity to probably becoming the number one spokesperson and proponent for Christianity that the world has ever known. And he would travel around in that day, around the Mediterranean rim, just finding groups of people and sharing with them that Jesus died for the sins of humanity, was resurrected, and he is the only source for salvation. And people were, as he talked to them, people were placing their faith in Jesus. And these groups of people all around, uh, like I said, the Mediterranean, the known world at that time, these groups of people would form up and they would become known as churches. And there was one particular town or city in, the, in, in Greece named Philippi. And Paul had gone there about 10 years earlier shared with a group of them, and they became Christ followers, and they formed the church there in Philippi. And there was a letter that, again, 10 years later, that Paul writes back to them and deals with some of the things they were facing as a church 
and it became known for us as the book of Philippians. And so that's what we're going to look at for the next few weeks is this book of Philippians, which was a letter that Paul actually wrote to first century Christians. Now, you might be sitting here and you think, well, okay, thanks God for that history lesson. Um, what does that have to do with my life today? And, and here's what I would tell you. Paul is writing to a group of people who were distressed, depressed, disillusioned, maybe even had a sense of uh, buyer's remorse when it came to Jesus. Because as soon as they placed their faith in Jesus, their whole world was turned upside down. Their community, their government, everyone turned against them. And so they're kind of looking at this relationship with Jesus going, wow, I gave my life to, to Christ and man, look what's happening to me. And in this particular day, uh, it was under Roman, the whole world was under the kind of Roman rule. And the emperor of Rome at this particular time was a guy named Nero. And he took it, he made it his personal ambition to get rid of Christianity. And this guy was bad. He was bad news. I mean, he would, he would do some horrific things to Christians. He, would, he personally were, was responsible for murdering many Christians. He would take Christians and he would put them, while they were living, he would put them on big poles. He would place them around in his personal garden. And when he would have a party hosting all these dignitaries, he would light them on fire so they would illuminate his gardens for the party. This was an evil guy. He, for amusement, would feed uh, Christians to lions. And he was personally responsible for beheading the Apostle Paul. So this is the guy that's in charge. And so, you know, Paul is writing to these people who lived every day scared for their lives under a very real threat that they would die a horrific kind of death. And he's writing to them, and his basic message is this. You can still have joy. Regardless of the circumstances that you find yourself in life, you can choose to have joy because joy is a choice. And this is the message that he sends to them. It's the message for us. As we look at this, as we go through this, that, that Paul would say to us, you can have a joy ride every day of your life because joy is a choice that you can make. And there is a big distinction between joy and happiness. Sometimes we interchange those words, right? Joy, happiness, happiness, joy, they mean the same thing, but they really don't. There's a distinction. We begin to learn this and understand this even more clearly as we look at this book of Philippians because what we begin to understand is that happiness is based on the circumstances of our life, whereas joy is a choice that we get to make. Happiness is based on the things that are happening around us. It's based on, you know, things that are going on around us. And if things are great, then we're happy. If things are not so great, not so happy because it's based on what's happening around us. But joy comes from within. Joy is a, is a byproduct of knowing Christ as our Savior. In fact, the, the Scripture talk, call, calls it a fruit that we have just knowing Jesus as our Savior, that we can actually choose to have joy regardless of the circumstances that we face. And so that's what we begin to understand. We begin to learn this as we look at this, this book, this letter that Paul writes to these Philippian believers, these first century Christ followers. And he's trying to help them understand, listen, you're going to face some things in life, but you can have joy and you can choose that every single day of your life. 
So we're going to look at this. We're going to get started today. We're going to start in Philippians chapter 1. And, and understand that when we say Philippians chapter 1, it's not like Paul wrote this letter and he was like, hey, chapter 1, verse 1. All those things were added later just for us to have a reference, okay? He wrote it like a letter. And so we're going to pick it up in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He starts off and he says, to all of you, to all of God's holy people, and the word he uses there is a word that really means saints. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of saints. I know it's football season, so you might think New Orleans saints, uh, or you might think, uh, you know, someone that did some miraculous kind of things when they were alive and after they died, uh, they achieved sainthood or was, uh, was granted sainthood in some way. I'm not sure what you think of, but the way Paul is using this here, he's saying all of those who have given their life to Christ, that you are considered saints. And so he's saying to all you holy people, to all you Christ followers there in Philippi, to all you saints, if you were writing it to us today, he might say all this, you know, to all the Christ followers in this area, he'd say to all God's holy people in Southeast Texas, or better known as Texans and Astros fans, to all of those, grace and peace to you, right? To all God's holy people. Now, why is it important? Why is it important to know what saint that, you know, that God looks at them and considers them saints? Why is Paul even think it's important to look at these people and say, hey, before we get started on this whole joyride, you need to understand that God sees you as a saint. That's God's view of you. Well, the reason he's telling them that is the same reason he would tell us that. Because too often we don't see ourselves that way, do we? Too often we, we see ourselves as rotten sinners who might occasionally do a saintly thing. But Paul is saying, no, no, no. If you are a Christ follower, God sees you as a saint, as set apart, as holy, who occasionally sins. That's the way God views you. Why would it be important for us to understand that? Because every time you look in the mirror, the person you see is the person you'll be. And study after study shows that. That the way we perceive ourselves is usually the way we'll act. If we perceive ourselves as being dirty, rotten sinners that never gets it right, then we'll excuse our behaviors and just kind of say, well, you know, I, I'm, that's the way I am. I, I don't get it right, you know. And we'll just keep living that. But if we perceive ourselves not as perfect, we're still imperfect. But we see ourselves as someone that is, in God's eyes, is a saint who's set apart, who's been cleansed, then we will see ourselves in a way that says, okay, occasionally I might do some things that are not in line with the character of who God has created me to be or who God wants me to be. But I'm aspiring to be that person and I want to live a life that's aligned with the way God sees me. It changes the way we see ourselves. It changes the way we behave. And so he's saying, listen, you are saints. And I know we talk around, around the bridge here. Our motto is no perfect people allowed. And so you might be going, well, where does that line up? Well, really, that's more about a mindset. You see, we can have a mindset occasionally that says, okay, yeah, I'm not perfect, but I'm more perfect than they are. Okay, look at their life. Okay, I used to think I wasn't perfect, but 
according to them, man, look at their life. I'm so perfect right now, you know. But we don't ever say that out loud. That's a whole different issue. But, but, but we think that sometimes, right? And so at the bridge, we really want to keep that mindset out of here. Because there's, no, there's never a day when we ought to be able to look at anybody and say, based on what you look like, I am so much better. Because we all have our issues. We all have things that we really don't want to talk about in public. So no perfect people is more about a mindset than anything else. What Paul is talking about is not so, so much that. See, we want to be a church. We want to be a church where it's okay to not be okay. That you can show up here and it's absolutely okay to not be okay because we're all in that same boat. We all have our issues. We all have our baggage. It's okay to not be okay. But if you're a Christ follower, you got to finish that statement. It's okay to not be okay, but it's never okay to stay that way. It's never okay to stay that way because as a Christ follower, we've experienced the love of Christ. We're in a relationship with Jesus. And in that relationship, well, I don't want to grow. Well, I don't want to become more like who God's created us to be. And that ought to mean that our life changes. Any relationship that you're involved in changes you over time, right? And we want to know that the relationship we have with Christ changes over time as well. It's okay. This is a place where it's okay to not be okay, but it's never okay to stay that way. So Paul's writing, he said, listen, to all of you saints, to all of you holy people, grace and peace to you. And he keeps going. Here's what he says. Verse 3. He said, I thank my God every time I remember you. He's looking back. Ten years, he was, ten years ago, he was there with them. And he's like, I thank God every time I think about you guys. Man, just a smile comes across my face, and I am so thankful for you. I thank God every time I, I remember you. And he keeps going. He says this in verse 4. He said, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Every time I pray for you guys, I pray with joy. Now, that, that, to me, that's an amazing thing. Because if you understand what Paul had gone through in his life at this point, Paul, at this point, he had already gone through so many different difficult situations. He had been whipped. He had been beaten. He had been stoned with rocks. Um, he had been, he was currently in prison. He's writing this letter from a prison cell where he is, uh, he is chained to a guard, a Roman guard, 24-7. Imagine that in your life. You're chained to a guard. You're not just in a cell. You're chained to a guard 24-7. And he's writing this letter from these circumstances. And he's saying, every time I pray for you guys, my heart's just filled with joy. Because again, joy is a choice. It's a choice that we make. And Paul's like, man, my heart's filled with joy because I choose to live a life that's characterized by joy. I'm not looking around at my circumstances. See, I, I'm afraid that if, for most of us, if we had experienced some of the things that Paul had experienced, I'm not even sure we'd want to pray, much less pray with joy. Because we would be probably upset with God that he hadn't done anything. We would be sitting back going, you know, God, either you don't care or you care, but... You're not powerful enough to do anything about my situation. 
or even worse, you are powerful enough and you're doing these things to me on purpose. And regardless of how we looked at it, we'd be so upset and so mad that we would say, you know what, I'm not even fooling with prayer. God doesn't care anyway, much less pray with joy. And Paul is like, listen, man, happiness, that's based on your circumstances. And those can change any day. But joy is a choice that you make regardless of the circumstances that you're in. And he says to these believers, I thank God for you guys. And my heart is filled with joy. I mean, he gets a little bit more specific and he says this. He says, this is why I'm filled with joy. And, and uh, he said, all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Because of your, and he uses a word here, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Because of your partnership in the gospel. Now, the gospel, when you see that phrase, the gospel, it means good news. That's what that word means, good news. So in other words, what Paul is saying is that the fact that Jesus died and was resurrected, we have the opportunity to make the greatest exchange the world's ever known. Because of his death and resurrection, we can exchange our guilt, our shame, our regrets, the worst moments of our life. We can exchange all of those things for a clean slate, for forgiveness, for a right relationship with God, and for a home in heaven. That's the greatest exchange that's ever been given. That's the good news that Paul was sharing with people. And he says, because of your partnership in this good news. And so he was thinking about how these people had been there for him, had supported him, had sent things to him to help him. He said, you guys are partners with me. And together we are making, God is using us to make a huge difference in this world. And when I was reading this and I started studying this passage a few weeks back, I couldn't help but think of a few things. I couldn't help but think of how, number one, we, we, at the bridge, we, call, we don't call people members here. We call you partners. We changed that a long time ago. So we wanted to be a church that had a bunch of members because members had a certain connotation. Like membership is like, I sit back and y'all take care of me. And that's not how we are. We would rather have partners with us, people that were going to work together side by side with us to accomplish something bigger than ourselves, to serve something bigger than ourselves. And so I started thinking about the partnership that we have. And then I started thinking about how many of you, you serve, you give, you sacrifice, you partner with us and how God has used the bridge to make such a huge difference. God is using the bridge. God is using your partnership to be this bridge of hope for people that have so many questions and they're looking for answers. And the lives that have been changed because of your partnership in the Sugarland area, across the nation, around the globe, it's just unbelievable. You know, I started thinking about six years ago today, we launched our second campus in the Regal Theater. And since that time, the two campuses have, have baptized almost 700 people in those six years. And, 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 and I started thinking, that, that's just an amazing thing to me. The lives that are changed because of that. And it's part of the reason that we're planning to launch a third campus in 2020 in Fulcher. And we're still moving in that direction. 
Because we want to see God continue to use us to make a difference in this world. And I started thinking about all those people that are baptized. And every one of those numbers, they all have a face. They all have a name. And they all represent someone whose life has been changed forever. And because their life has been changed, the people they're connected to, their families, their spouse, their children, their mom, their dad, their relatives, their, their co-workers, their neighbors, all of their lives are, are connected to them. And they're changed as well in some way or another because of that connection. And I started thinking about so many of you. And whether you, whether you set up environments and tear down environments around here, whether you are part of a set build team that builds sets, whether you run a camera, whether you work backstage with wires and, and sound and things where nobody ever sees you, whether you make coffee that nobody ever knows who's making it, but it's always good, whether you're out there greeting people, whether you work in our children's ministry, whether you serve in our student ministry, whether you sing or play an instrument, whether you're part of our prayer team, whether you're a small group leader, whether you give financially to support the bridge or you invite your friends to be a part of this place, every spiritual decision and life that's been changed, you are connected to it. Every single one of them. And if you ever think that what you do is too small to be noticed, I'm telling you right now, it is noticed and it's, and it's noticed by God, number one. And it's noticed by every life that's been changed. You're a part of that because of your partnership. And I started thinking about, we couldn't do any of this without you. And just like Paul said to them, I say that to you. I'm so thankful for you. I'm so grateful for what you've been willing to do in partnering with us to see so many lives changed. He said, because of that, Man, my, my heart is filled with joy because of your partnership. And then he goes to verse 6, and here's what he says. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Carry it on to completion. Any of you have any projects around the house that are unfinished? Yeah, you got, you know, you got like a, a room that's kind of half painted or a car that's half restored or a shed that's half built. I mean, just projects around that are in some stage or another being completed, but they're not quite completed yet. Now, I don't know about you, but, but there, it's just part of my personality. You might say it's part of my dysfunction, but that it drives me nuts when there's unfinished projects. Like, like I can't just go mow the grass without weed eating, without blowing, without picking everything up. I can't do that. I, I, it just drives me crazy. Now, I know some of you can walk away halfway through it, and, and I don't understand you. I, I realize you exist, but I don't understand you, okay? It drives me nuts to have projects that are unfinished. You can ask my wife. And Paul is addressing people, maybe like me, who would say, Paul is saying, some of you feel guilty because you might think I'm not where I need to be or my life isn't as far along as it should be or maybe I'm not as spiritual as some other people and you feel guilty about it because you feel like you're this unfinished project and it's not moving any direction it's just kind of sitting there and you keep staring at it every day 
And you think, I don't read and pray like I should. I'm not nearly as spiritual as that person. I still think things and do things that I hope no one ever knows about. And you start feeling like all of this rests on my shoulders to be different, to do this thing, to finish this work, to complete this project. And every day that goes by that we don't make any progress on it, we feel guilty. And Paul is saying, listen, he began the work in you. And he will finish the work that he started in you. He will carry it on to completion. And that word completion, it means spiritual maturity. That he will, what he began in you, he will carry it to a place of spiritual maturity. In other words, you're becoming like Christ. You're becoming more and more like Jesus. And he's like, I began this work. God is saying, I began this work in you and I will finish that work. Now, the moment moment we said yes to Jesus, that's the moment that work began. Now, you might sit back and go, well, what if I've never said yes to Jesus? Well, God's still at work. He's just working around you right now and he's not started working in you yet. He's just working around you, bringing you to a place where you will open up your heart so he can work in you. See, think about this. If you're here today and you say, well, I've not said yes to Jesus yet. Well, how do you think you got here this morning? Well, I drove. Well, not only physically. See, what I would say is that God has used people, events, circumstances, to cause your heart to be open to even want to be in a place like this. And he's using those things to draw you to a place where eventually you will say yes to him. And the moment you say yes to him, he begins a brand new work in you. In you. And he will carry that work on to completion. We don't have to sit back and carry all of the weight of this thing on our shoulders. God never said, I'm going to start the work and you finish it. There's no way we could do that. He said, I'm going to start the work and I promise I will finish. I'll carry it on to completion. And he says, and this is really important. He says, I began to work and he uses two little words in you. And see, those two little words are huge because they really set Christianity apart from every other religion in the world. See, most every other religion in the world, it's all about the things I do outwardly to make sure that God is pleased with me. I have to do all of these things so that God would be happy with me. And Christianity says, no, 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 no. It's not about all those outward things. Christianity is much more like an inside out kind of faith. That God wants to do something in you that will come out of you. That God is creating things in you that eventually will come on the outside of you. He is working within. It's much like how joy comes from within and works its way out. He's like, I'm working on you, but I'm working from the inside out. And eventually it will come out. And I think too often, though, we send the confusing message. The church does. Christians do. Because we have a Christianity at times, the brand of Christianity at times, it seems much more like behavior modification. You just behave your way. You behave your way to a right place. 
And so to be a Christian, you know, you got to quit this, stop that, start this, don't go there, don't do that. You know, when I was growing up as a kid, you know, Christians weren't supposed to go to R-rated movies. You weren't supposed to be in certain places that you weren't supposed to be. You weren't supposed to use a certain kind of language. You can't drink. You can't dance. And then people used to ask, can Christians dance? Well, some can, some can't, some never should. But that's a different message altogether. All these things that you're supposed to do, all these behaviors to show, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm behaving my way a certain way. And the reality is there's no way we can, all those rules, there's no way we can ever do all those things. And every time we go into this behavior modification kind of Christianity, we heap a ton of guilt onto ourselves because we can't keep up with all the rules. And how in the world are we ever going to live a life of joy if we're constantly heaping all these rules and guilt on our lives? There's no way. And the truth is Christianity was never meant to be that way. It was always meant as an inside-out kind of thing. That he changes you inwardly and it works its way to the outside. And as God works inwardly on who you are on the inside, it, it eventually does affect the things you say, the way you think, the things you do. But you don't behave in order to get God's approval. As Christ followers, we already have his approval. We behave in such a way that reflects the change that he's creating within us. It's a whole different thing. He said, he who began this work in you, he will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And he goes over in verse 9. He gets to verse 9 and he says this. And this is my prayer. That you would find happiness and prosperity this year. That's not really what it says. But I think that's what we want it to say. I think that's as, as Christ followers, that's what we want, right? I mean, we, we want to know that, that, you know, God is going to, you know, just take care of everything. And, and, and see, we're, here, here's the problem a lot of times for us as, as Christians, we, we live in this microwavable world, and we're instant gratification people. And so we're talking about God is going to create, you know, God is going to do this thing in us, and we're confident that he's changing us. When we face times that are uncertain, or we face times that are difficult, we want God to do something now. And if he doesn't do something now, then, we, you know, we got issues, right? And so we're facing these times, and we don't really know, and and we're nervous about what's happening around us. And we don't know how to respond. All these kind of things. We're saying, God, I need you to fix this. I need you to answer this. I need you to do this. I need you to move. I need you to do, you know, answer me. Fix this now. And sometimes God does that. Out of his grace, sometimes he fixes things immediately. But that's not typically the way God works. Because God is much more about working in your life and growing you. And oftentimes, fix this doesn't really grow you. So instead of fix this, God more often opts for follow me. I can fix it. I am powerful. I can do that. But fixing this is instant gratification. And likely, you will take it and then you'll go off to something else. 
But follow me is a process. And along the way in that process, you start growing and you start heading in a direction of spiritual maturity where you're becoming more like Jesus every day. And so more often he will opt for follow me. But we sit back and, you know, we want it to be, this is my prayer, you know, that you're going to have prosperity and favor and all this kind of good stuff. And we pray for those kinds of things. Think about this. If God were to answer yes to the prayers that you and I prayed most often, you think about this past week, this past month, this past year, the prayers you prayed most often, if God were to answer yes to every one of those, what would happen in your life? Well, we would make it to our destination safely. Our kids would behave better. They would get better grades. And our food would digest well. Right? You know, God, keep us safe as we travel. God, watch over my kids, help them behave, help them to get better grades. And God, just bless this food to my body. Well, I mean, he's going to do that unless it's just too greasy or something. But, I mean, it's, it's like if... We, Think about the prayers that we pray most often. I'm not talking about when you're in the middle of a bad situation. I'm talking about when you pray most often. And, and, and the question I would have is, is it possible that sometimes our, our walk, our relationship with Christ feels stale or stagnant because our prayers are too small? Is that possible? Well, this is what Paul actually said. In verse 9, he said, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. That your love may abound. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you prayed about being able to love better? Now, I'm not talking about praying about being a better lover. That's a different deal. I'm talking about when you prayed... <laughs> About loving other people better. When was the last time you prayed about God helping you to be more kind to your spouse and to your kids? When was the last time you prayed that God would help you in your response to the people at your workplace? When was the last time you prayed that God would give you more patience on 59 and I-10? When was the last time you prayed that God would help you not to use your horn and certain fingers as much? I mean, when, when was the last time you prayed? Your spouse told me to say that. Uh, when was the last time you prayed about your love for other people? That God would help you to be sensitive to people in need. And that you would have the opportunity to meet those needs in other people's lives. When? was the last time you prayed, God, help my love to abound for other people. See, a mark of spiritual maturity, because we talk about spiritual maturity, becoming more like Christ. A mark of spiritual maturity is how well we love other people. We say around here at the bridge all the time that spiritual maturity is about loving God and loving people better. It's not about how often you read your Bible. It's not about how often you pray. It's not about how often you come to church. It's about how well are you loving other people and how well are you loving God. 
Those are the markers of spiritual maturity. And don't get me wrong, I don't want you to misunderstand. Praying, reading your Bible, attending church, those are all important parts of that. But those are more outward things that, that, that again, it's part of that external kind of religious type thing. As opposed to them being that inward thing that helps facilitate your love for other people and your love for God. You know, one of the things that we, we talk a lot around here about are small groups. And small groups are groups of, you know, 10 to 14 people, 5 to 7 couples that meet together outside of Sunday morning and usually in someone's home. And you spend time building relationships with each other. And you open up scripture and you see what God's word has to say and how you can apply it to your lives in a more intimate and personal setting like a small group. We've talked about it in here, you know, everybody sits in rows and we talk about the rows don't know, you know, nobody on the row knows what you're going through. In a small group, you sit in circles, you face each other. There's opportunity for you to have community with people and really do life together. And so we, we in, this, in this study that we're doing, this Joyride series, we, we've said for the last few weeks that being a part of a small group is how you're going to get the most out of this series. Because all the small groups are going in alignment with what we're teaching on Sundays. So this is kind of a starting place, what we're teaching on Sundays, for what your groups talk about in your small group. And the reason I think those are important is because in that small group, that's really where you have the encouragement and the accountability to live this kind of stuff out. And to really experience what joy could be like on a daily basis. To understand more about what it means to love other people well and I encourage you you can still get in a small group today is they, they launched this evening so you can still get in one and I, I want to encourage you to go to the breeze.me slash groups and sign up for one to be a part of this and a while ago Jeffrey mentioned starting point and that's a that's a group that I lead on Wednesday nights and it's it's not going to be part of the joyride series but it's really it's a place for anyone that's new to Christianity or maybe you're just still kicking the tires of Christianity you don't know enough about it you've got all kinds of questions and you just wish there was a safe place to go and ask your questions where you wouldn't feel judged starting point is the place to do that you say but yeah but you're going to be in there teaching it I'll probably feel judged just by that no you won't I promise I promise that other people will tell you that have been through it it's just a place for us to talk it's a place for to try to get some understanding and I encourage you to sign up to be a part of that. It's eight weeks. Starts this Wednesday night. Meets up here on Wednesday evenings. But small group, that's what really begins to help facilitate this growth, the spiritual maturity that God is moving you in the direction of. And so Paul, he wraps up this passage and he says, this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless to the day of Christ Jesus, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. See, Paul's prayer for them be my prayer for you. That as these things grow in you, you would be able to discern what is best. You know, the enemy of best is not worst, Right? The enemy of best is uh, the myriad of other options you have that are probably good. They're just not the best. And they keep you from pursuing the best because you're distracted by all the good. And my prayer would be for your life, for your, 
your work, for your relationships, for your marriage, for your home, for your finances. That as your love for God grows, as your love for other people grows, that you would be able to discern what is best in all areas of your life. So you can be pure and blameless to the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. So in other words, that you would become more and more like Christ. That your life would change over time. As you continue to discern, what is best for my life? What is best for my life? The bottom line of today is that God always completes what he began. He will always finish the work he began. I may not. You may not. But God always will. He will complete his work. The question that you and I have to answer is will you participate with him in that work? Will you participate with him in that work? In other words, will you be at a place where you're open to him and saying, God, I want you to work in me. I want you to help me discern what is best. I want you to cause my love to increase. I'm saying yes to you to participate with you in this relationship, in this work. And see, if you do that, by the time Christmas gets here, your life will be different. God will open up your eyes to a whole different way of living. And by this time next year, you'll actually be transformed. It starts with you saying, yes, I want to be a part of what you're doing. Paul said, I'm so confident that he who began that work will carry it on to completion. What would it look like in your life this week, these next few weeks, the remainder of this year, if you lived every day of your life with the confidence that God is at work, with the confidence that he began something in you that he plans to complete, with the confidence that he's not only with you, but he cares about you, that every prayer you pray is heard by him, that he will never leave you out there by yourself, Every day, every situation, every circumstance you face, he is right there with you, walking with you, carrying you, working to complete this work in you. What if you lived every day with that confidence? I believe that's a key ingredient to you experiencing a joy ride. That you know that God is working all the time. In your best moments and in your worst moments. He's working. With that confidence, I think we can all have joy. Let me pray for us, okay?